Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast of conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and I'm really excited to have today's guest joining us for a conversation behind his content published in the May 2020 edition of Clinicians Brief. Dr. Jonathan Miller, thank you for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. So we're going to take a deep dive into your article on jaw fractures. Again, that was May 2020 Clinician's Brief. But before we do, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about your your background, how you ended up in soft tissue and orthopedics, and you know what your journey was to get you where you are today. Well, I think any veterinary surgeon is going to have an interesting journey. Uh, took me uh, all around America and all around a little bit of Canada as well. So I'm originally from Illinois and did vet school there. And then my first year out of vet school, did an internship up in Prince Edward Island at the vet school up there. And then did a surgery internship down in Houston, Texas, and then did surgery residency in Virginia Tech. So a whole lot of uh, driving U-Hauls around (laughs) in my younger days. But I found a nice uh, practice in uh, New Jersey, and I've been here close to 13 years now and get to do lots of orthopedics and soft tissue surgery. And they always keep me busy and keep me hopping. Yeah, well, with obesity rates in America, <laughs> you should, you'll be staying there, right? Yep. I guess, you know, what was the part of your veterinary education journey that led you into surgery? Um, so during vet school, I, I really just wanted to be a general practitioner and go out and do the normal veterinary medicine gig. Uh, but when it came to junior year, when we were doing neuters and spades, I really enjoyed that. Senior year, you get to hang out with all the uh, specialists. And I really enjoyed surgery. And I really um, thought that we could do a whole lot of good for a whole lot of dogs by uh, taking that path. So that's, that's kind of where it changed for me was junior, senior year of vet school. And then I guess, you know, the question I love to ask all of my authors is, were you a lifelong aspiring veterinarian or did that come about for you later in life? Oh, yeah. I was one of those lifers. I would always uh, hang out with the dogs versus the humans and and, uh, always uh, had that path. My first job at 16 years of age was working for the vet down the street. And I would ride my bike down there and clean cages and walk dogs. So. I'm a, definitely a lifer. Yeah, yeah. As as are most of my guests, but I always love to hear how that journey goes. So, all right, diving into this article, it was interesting to me. So, you know, I, I love to see what comes across my desk when we start to to look at forming podcasts from really great content. And we we looked at this article that you wrote. And I was surprised by a few things in the opening of this article. First, that jaw fractures only represent 2% of our canine and 15% of our feline fractures. Honestly, I guess given the, the most common causes that you listed, so things like motor vehicle traumas, animal bites, blunt force trauma, falls. I don't know, I guess how many I've seen in practice in combination with that, I would have thought that those numbers would have been higher. So um, I guess the first thing I want to talk about was the presentation of these cases, the most common fracture areas. And honestly, to speak a little bit more to the fact that you mentioned that these guys don't seem to be painful enough in a way that it's detected by the owners until they're like dropping food or don't want to eat. So I I know that's a whole lot, but kind of break all that down for me. 
Yeah, so uh, fractures, I mean, lots of dogs and cats do stupid things out there, and, you know, get hit by a car or fall off of something or get their foot stuck in a hole or in the stairway banister and break a leg. So, so really, that's more, much more common as we see limb fractures, and we know how to deal with those. But the jaw fractures, it usually takes something dramatic like getting hit by a car in the head. Whereas most animals, you know, normally will protect their head. That's where the important things are, like the eyes and the mouth and the nose. And then animal bites is usually the number two cause for jaw fractures. Um, We do see this more now that uh, people are so active in the dog parks and socializing their dogs. And then, of course, in our cats, usually it's an outdoor cat and they come inside and they maybe don't eat as well as they normally do, or maybe the owner notices that there's some blood in the water bowl. But, you know, our dogs and cats are just really tough in general, so they tend to to hide pain pretty well. So that's why it's usually not super dramatic. I just had a a cute little Italian greyhound in that jumped out of the owner's arms and broke his radius ulna up in the front leg. Those dogs are wimps. (laughs) Those dogs will let you know it hurts right away. So that dog was, you know, yelping and screaming when he broke his leg. But most of our jaw fractures, the dogs and cats just kind of put up with it. It's, uh, It's kind of remarkable that that's the way they do it. But usually we'll see, you know, bleeding from the mouth or you'll just look at them and see that their face is a little off or their They can't close their mouth all the way or their canine teeth look a little off. So that's that's usually the way the owners will recognize it. It shocks me, right? Because I would think they'd be like pawing at their face or there'd be swelling or or something else. And I just think, like you said, they're just so tough. And I, I give them a lot of credit. Like if I had a broken jaw. Everyone would know it. I always tell owners that the dogs are way tougher than we are. They put up yes. with way more than we do. <laughs> oh, I mean, I can't. Well, you know, and you say that and I sound surprised, but then I think about how many weight bearing fractures I've seen in general. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. and, and it's been like days. You know what I mean? And, and you're yeah. like, well, man, you would think that they would, you know, they're, like you said, they're just really tough. So, okay, we have these traumatic injuries that create jaw fractures. The other thing that really stood out to me, like when I think jaw fracture, is I think about dental extractions and the fear that comes, you know, especially these like tiny, I mean, just tiny little guys. So, how often does that actually happen additionally and especially comparatively? So, you know, I actually looked pretty hard to find an answer for that question, even when I was making this article. And as far as I can tell, we don't have a good study on this. And that may be that, you know, veterinarians are a little reluctant to say, hey, guess what I did today? I broke a dog's dog jaw. Um, But we have a very um, active dental practice in my hospital. And we get referrals and we do a lot of teeth extractions and really, we don't see it that often. Like the hit by car jaw fractures, the bites to the face jaw fractures, we see way more commonly than a veterinarian causing a problem. So we can, we can feel pretty confident if it's healthy bone. <laughs> yeah, so I think the key there is know what you're getting into. If you've got a 15-year-old chihuahua, 
you better have already talked to that owner about the potential for bone loss, mandibular uh, fractures if you're trying to extract teeth. Dental radiographs are the best way to tell what's going on there. So you should ideally be taking radiographs on every tooth before you take it out so that you can see what the bone looks like around it. So you can see what the pulp looks like and the root looks like. And then if you're in a situation where you're really worried about it, then find a referral place where you can send them off to a boarded dentist and say, you know, the risk is just too great on this particular dog. I don't want to take the chance. Send them somewhere else. I think that's completely reasonable. And I, I like the fact too, you know, you mentioned the added additional reasons we should be taking dental radiographs. Like if there aren't enough reasons, just giving yourself that confidence that you're you're working with healthy bone in the first place. But I, I mean, I can picture such tiny little jaws out there. Um, and sometimes tiny little jaws house very large teeth. That's tra- <laughs> dramatically true. Like sometimes you'll take an x-ray of a little chihuahua bath and you think, oh my gosh, there is no bone at all. How is this tooth even hanging on? Right. Yeah. And, and that's the one that's super hanging on, right? Right. You have to work exactly. on the heart. And you're like, this physiologically does not make sense to me. Well, you know, I mean, I think that helps to give that added confidence to our GPs. And, and when in doubt, referred. And I love to have that conversation because I think sometimes people are hesitant to refer things and they, they want to be able to do it. And I think it's so good to say like, look, if you're not comfortable, just don't. Yeah. There's always this balance between veterinarians being expected to be a jack of all trades and do everything and be good at everything. And it's okay to know your limits or to know when you say, I think I'm getting in over my head. I just need some help with this. And that's okay. That's why there's a bunch of specialists out there. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I uh, recently saw that kind of surprised me was humans. The percentage of jaws that get fractured by extracting teeth is 0.0003%. So wow. Super, super rare even in humans. And obviously we have probably have bigger jaws for the most part than a lot of our patients. Can you imagine that explanation, though, like when you wake up? So, like, the good news is your tooth is out. The bad, bad news, news is, is it's time to go to an oral surgeon. <laughs> you have your mouth wired shut and <laughs> exactly. it's going to be a long road to recovery. Yeah. I guess kind of along those very lines is when we think about diagnosing these jaw fractures, like you're, you know, obviously we have malocclusions and we see food dropping, but like, skull rads, you know, oral rads, they're not easy. So um, what are the major challenges that you see in getting a really good diagnosis of, okay, we know it's fractured, but really visualizing that fracture and knowing how to deal with it? So this kind of depends on what size animal you're dealing with. So cat, small dog, dental radiographs, totally fine. You'll be able to see uh, pretty much everything in the mouth you need to see with those. Once you get into the medium-sized dogs or the large-sized dogs, time to go to radiology and get a nice full set of mandibular films. And what do I think about when I say that? I say, put them on their back. Do a straight one where you're going ventral to dorsal so you can see that mandible. Do a lateral shot and then probably more importantly, do two obliques. So you want to highlight the left mandible and the right mandible so that you can see the entire structure of the body, which is the horizontal part, and then the ramus, which is the vertical part. 
in a lot of larger dogs, like they get hit by a car, and we're worried about maxillary fractures. Um, radiographs are sometimes very challenging because there's a lot of little bones, especially when you get caudal into the maxillary teeth area. So um, we've actually found that in our large dogs that get facial or head trauma, we put them in the CT and we get such a better detail. We can see all the little bones in there, see exactly what's going on. Are there any skull fractures? Are there any nasal fractures we need to worry about? So it kind of depends on what size dog you have and what uh, availability you have to equipment. Okay, and so I guess along those lines, you think the majority of us are working with basic radiographic equipment. What are are the tips you can offer for success in getting those great films when you talk about obliquing and those angles and really positioning? I think about how many skull rads I've taken and how creative we've had to get with bandaging and ties and getting those really good angles without having, you know, lead gloves in the way. What do you do to get that really good picture? Two major things. One is anesthesia. You've got to have these dogs out. If you're ha- trying to do skull or mandibular radiographs on an awake dog, it's just not going to happen. So you need to reach for heavy sedation or more probably importantly, general anesthesia, intubate these guys. If they've got swelling around the mouth or the airway, that's going to be much safer anyhow. So that way you don't have to fight with an awake dog or an awake cat while you're trying to get those oblique positions. The other thing that our radiology team uses a lot are um, foam wedges. So they have these uh, wedges that you can buy and you just set the head gently on those. And most of the time, like 30 or 45 degree wedge, you can position it so that you can get a nice oblique. But a lot of it is experience and just trial and error. So if you take it and it doesn't look good, then readjust, take another one. What are the challenges with your head trauma cases in these, you know, sedating and anesthesia if, if we're trying to get a grasp of, of traumatically what's going on. Do you have like concerns around that at all? Uh, not particularly. Um, the biggest thing we do with head trauma cases is we give them the mannitol beforehand. Yeah. So we give them mannitol. We know that that's going to reduce any kind of brain swelling that's going on so that we can do anesthesia much more safely. And then we avoid things like ketamine, which we know are going to increase swelling of the brain just because it increases the cerebral vascular flow. Um, but anesthesia in general, um, I mean, unless they're comatose or something, then you don't have to do it, obviously. But if they're <laughs> that bad, then maybe you've got different problems. Um, <laughs> but anesthesia in general with head trauma cases, um, usually we don't have much of an issue with, like we don't have a complications doing that. So I would think for the most part, you're going to be pretty safe doing that. That kind of made me think though, to that point exactly, where on the list of priorities is this broken jaw in our trauma cases? Like, since we know that sometimes these guys go with a broken jaw for a significant amount of time because they are so tough, I guess in my head, I'm thinking to myself, how urgent is this? 
Uh, it's definitely further down in your list of urgencies. So, you know, dog comes in, got hit by a car. Number one thing, put an IV catheter in, get venous access, take chest x-rays, make sure their lungs are healthy, do your nerve exam, and make sure we know what's going on with the cranial nerves. So all of that, any kind of blood pressure issues, all that you're going to stabilize. And even if you have to wait, you know, like you said, a day, two, three days to finally get around to saying, hey, now the dog is stable. We can move on to getting more diagnostics and figuring out why he's bleeding from the mouth. So it just depends on you know their clinical status, what you prioritize. See, because I guess for me, it was making me think about like, say you're a general practitioner and it's Saturday mornings, Saturday afternoon and hit by car comes in, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, this is not something I want to tackle. I would rather send it off to a specialist. You know, I was thinking to myself, what is the urgency? Do we need to, you know, for, for where I particularly live, if you want a specialist on a weekend, you've got to go about two and a half, three hours. Monday? they'll be in. So I was thinking to myself, how comfortable can we feel just like getting that dog through the weekend and, and then doing a transfer and then it kind of comfortable. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And and then I guess that turned into another question for me, which is like, how comfortable do we feel with the repair and GP? Like if you feel comfortable, is that something that's perfectly, do you feel good about general practitioners doing that? And, and are we referring to a specialist based on our level of comfort or is there a time when you say these ones really need to go because of this? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it is depends on the each veterinarian's level of comfort. You know, some easy ones to do are the symphyseal separations. You know, cat comes in, you can tell that his mandibular symphysis is off because his canine teeth aren't lined up and he can't close his jaw. Everything else is fine. All they really need is a wire, you know, put around the bottom of the jaw, just caudal to the canine teeth. And it doesn't take a lot of skill. It doesn't take a lot of fancy equipment. You just need a wire. Uh, 18 gauge needle and a wire twister and that's that's it so that perfectly happy for gps to do and then as we move further and further caudal in the mouth then i get more and more nervous about gps doing stuff but there are classes and courses on uh, some of the things they're talking about in the article like the intraoral splints um, if a gp is comfortable with that and has a keen interest in that, I see no reason why they can't do that. Just make sure that you do the appropriate training, you do the appropriate imaging, and you do the appropriate follow-up. So I think a lot of this GPs can get in on. When it comes to doing like external fixators or plates, yeah, you're probably best to refer that off to a surgeon. But anything you can do with wires or acrylic, I wouldn't be too scared to have GPs tackle that. Clinician's Brief offers high-quality clinical CE so you can study from home at your own pace. Courses are race-approved and designed for your busy schedule. Start a new course now, finish it whenever. Browse a collection of courses today at cliniciansbrief.com backslash CE.
All right. So speaking of all the different uh, wires and fixators and things that we can do, do most cases do better with surgical repair? And and what does that post-recovery look like? Yeah. You know, we, we probably are lucky when we talk about the jaw because there's such good blood supply. We know that surgery in the mouth, we can do some really horrific things like cutting out, you know, half of the mandible or removing yeah. a huge chunk of the maxilla and you do it on a Labrador retriever. And I've done it. And you see these dogs like two hours later, they're hungry and they want to yeah. eat. And it just boggles my mind that they bounce back like that. But the mouth heals really fast. It's got really good blood supply. So typically, these jaw fractures do go on to heal. And a lot of times, uh, even if they haven't been you know, perfectly aligned, the dogs can adjust fine to it. So surprisingly, they tend to do pretty well. Uh, the biggest stuff for after repair is treat the pain, make sure they're comfortable. That way they're going to eat faster. They're going to get out of the hospital faster. Uh, the big stuff for the owners at home are no toys, um, either canned food or wet the dry food, like soak it in water for five minutes or so before you let the dog eat it. Cats are a little bit more picky as far as uh, us doing stuff to their mouths. Sometimes we will have to go to a, like an esophagostomy tube or a gastrostomy tube to get them through like that first week or so of of healing where they finally feel comfortable enough to start eating again. But even a lot of cats, it's, it's surprising what, what they can put up with and still eat the next day or the second day after that. Do you find these guys are predisposed to future complications either, you know, in that initial break site or later? Typically, if you're going to have a complication, you'll know about it within the first week or two. So it'll be, oh, the wire's sticking out or the wire got loose or um, there's more bleeding now than there used to be. So if you're going to have uh, implant-associated problems, you're going to see it pretty quick. Infection uh, uh, associated with implants, thankfully, is pretty rare inside of the mouth. Again, good blood supply tends to heal pretty well. Um, we do, you know, if you have a break in the oral mucosa, do typically treat with antibiotics for a week or so afterwards. But over the long haul, as long as you can get that bone to heal, they tend to do real well. Um, the other complications that we can see is if your fracture is through a root of a tooth, then we're going to see those cases back at six to eight weeks to reassess them, probably take new radiographs at that point, that would be a good time to say, let's look hard at that tooth that was in the fracture line, re-image that. Is that something that needs to be extracted at that point? So those are kind of the, the big things we think about over the long haul. So in your article too, you mentioned conservative treatment as an option uh, for some cases when financial constraints are you know, an issue which feels like a lot of times for a lot of us. And so when is that an option? When is it not an option? Tell us a little more about this. 
You know, I've had success with tape muzzles in a variety of different fractures, so they actually work better than you think they would when you have fractures in the caudal portion of the body, like right in front of the ramus. Sometimes we'll see a dog grab onto something they shouldn't grab onto and then have bilateral fractures back there, and that's a tough place to do surgery on. So we put a tape muzzle on those dogs, and they, they tend to, to heal up actually a lot better than you think they would. Anything too cranial in the mouth, like if it's in front of the canine teeth um, and the owners have money considerations, then a lot of times you just say, all right, well, we'll just get rid of that little portion of the mandible. If there's you know, one or two or three incisors on there, we'll just do a partial mandibulectomy. And usually the dogs don't care at all about that. Tape muzzles for the mid-body fractures. Um, if there is a lot of oral mucosal damage, so you've got an open fracture, usually what we want to do is close the oral mucosa so that we can get a seal over that bone. Those dogs tend to do a little bit better with tape muzzles. Um, obviously, the more trauma there is to the soft tissues, the less I'm excited to put a tape muzzle on. Like if I get a dog or cat in that gets bit in the face by another dog. Usually there's a lot of wounds and other issues that I don't really want to cover up with a tape muzzle, but tape muzzles can be used in a, a variety of different situations successfully. So tape muzzle, no tape muzzle, in, in obviously the expectations for outcome are going to be different, but how do you set your clients up for success the best there and for aftercare and at-home follow-up? So when we do the tape muzzle, obviously you have to leave enough space for them to get their tongue out and to lick up like a liquefied kind of diet, a gruel kind of diet, or you know, the soft canned food. Sometimes we even have to blenderize some of the canned foods to get it liquid enough that they can slurp that up. And then... For the owners, doing some just kind of routine maintenance, so we tell them to use a baby wipe and kind of wipe the face around the tape muzzle and then try to keep it uh, dry. Otherwise, we can see you know, a good bit of dermatitis if they're not taking good care of the tape muzzle, like the, the tissue, the skin and the hair underneath can get wet and gross. And if it starts smelling at all, then we always tell them, come in, we may need to change that and put some new tape on it, maybe clip some hair around there if there's dermatitis. But the, the soft food is, is the biggest uh, deal for the owners to have to worry about. And then I guess going to your, when you talk about like ectomies, right, which whichever side of things would need to be removed. I can only imagine that being, I mean, it's obviously it's disfiguring, right? And so how do you manage client expectations there? How do you talk to your client about like, I know that, you know, people hesitate to have, say, like a leg removed when there's an osteo or, a, you know, a soft tissue sarcoma. And they're like, oh, my dog couldn't possibly live with three legs and it's torture, you know. And they think about clients who are probably the shock value of thinking of having half of their muzzle removed and still doing fine. How do you have that conversation with a client, prepare them for what they're going to see and go through that process? Uh, I take pictures. 
So I take pictures yeah. of, of patients that I've done surgery on and so that I have them with amputation. That's always a pretty big, you know, psychological, emotional deal for the owners to, to wrap their minds around. I have this great picture of a golden retriever. I think he was two weeks out from a front limb amputation for a tumor. And he's like in motion, jumping into the pool. And you could just tell by the grin on his face, he's so happy yeah. at two weeks out from amputation. So we do the same thing with mandibulectomies, maxillectomies. So we have a set of pictures that we can say, hey, this dog lost half of its lower jaw. Can you tell? Most of the time, they can't tell very much. Obviously, in cats, it's different. Um, cats tend to be a little bit more persnickety about removing uh, parts of their jaw and, and eating afterwards. Uh, there was just a recent study out that looked specifically at that in cats, and they actually do better than, than you think they're going to do. So put a feeding tube in for a week or so, and the vast majority of those cats actually... Um, went on to start eating again and doing better again. But we always tell the owners, you know, it's going to bleed for a while, for three to five days. Don't worry about that part. That's just the, the mouth healing. But most of the time, it's dogs, uh, A, put up with it real well, and B, hide it pretty well. I feel like you're treating the client mentally as much as Definitely. the patient, yep. you know, and, and that as a dog mom who is a vet tech, but also has a dog who went through an amputation. I like, I called her surgeon a couple of days later and I was like, w we have to get her a prosthetic, you know, and the, she's like, there's nothing, Becky, that's not how this works. You know that, you know, <laughs> we've taken the whole leg and I, but it's such an emotional thing and convincing them there's a long life to live. Um, my girl just had her three year anniversary and she's 13, you know, uh, so awesome. yeah, like yeah. getting them to see three years down the road of happy life is really hard in that moment. Her losing a leg is something I've seen so many times before. I just I can't imagine the emotional feeling of, of my dog having half of their mouth gone. But also, you see these guys out there doing great. Um, I love that you have visuals of that. I think having visuals makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a great piece of advice for all of our practitioners um, for all kinds of amputations, right? Not just <laughs> whatever it needs to be to kind of help nurture that emotional response. And everybody's got a cell phone with a camera on it nowadays. Yeah. So if you're in the operating room or you're at the dental table and you see something cool, have your tech or somebody who's not scrubbed in, take a picture. And Don't worry, they already did. Yeah. Just ask them. <laughs> they already for did. It. Just ask them to send it to you so that you can. You have know, it. your text took a picture of that in the lobby. That's right. <laughs> Just go follow them on Instagram. The picture's up there. That's like, right. hashtag permission to post. <laughs> All right. So you're taking me to my keep it brief segment. No pressure. We almost never keep it brief here. I was thinking in talking with you as a soft tissue and orthopedic specialist in general, um, jaw fractures aside, jaw fractures included, what complementary therapies do you find most effective for? your patients and and these specific patients what types of things laser acupuncture what do you like uh so here you kind of have to take it on an individual basis so it kind of depends on how cranky the cat or the dog is because what you don't want to do is send the 
the dog home with instructions for the owner to ice them every six hours and have the owner call you six hours later and say, he just bit me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You do do have to be cautious about that. But icing the area for the first two, three days is a good thing. That'll reduce swelling um, and uh, reduce some pain associated with it. I'm sure I put it in the article, but I forgot to mention it earlier. You know, whenever you're doing uh, work on the mouth, use your local anesthesia techniques. So block those nerves before you do surgery on it so that they don't get so much wind up. So that's a big thing. Acupuncture, again, you know, take it on an individual basis. If it's a good dog, then we can see some positive results out of that. I can't say that we use a lot of laser therapy on our oral stuff. Um, so I don't think that I, uh, I have a good answer for that part. Massage, so just kind of depends on where the issue is. If we think there was a lot of stretching of like the master muscle, then that can be uh, included in that. But mostly it's just pain control, soft food, and they'll get through it. Yeah, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And mostly just, you know, the confidence factor, right, of being able to to do it. And that's what all this, um, you know, CE and training and amazing articles, just like the one you wrote for the May 2020 edition of Clinicians Brief on Jaw Fractures. Dr. Jonathan Miller, thank you so much for your time today for this article and for kind of helping us uh, weed through all of this. Well, this was very fun. Thank you for doing this and getting the word out about uh, helping our, our little furry furry family members. That's what we're here for. And we really enjoyed the conversation today. I know we will have you back next time to have some more interesting conversations. All right. Sounds great. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.